0: The Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, is a 13-nation organization that was founded by Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela back in 1960. These 13 nations still work together today, through OPEC, to, in their words, quote, coordinate and unify the petroleum policies of its member countries and ensure the stabilization of oil markets in order to secure an efficient, economic, and regular supply of petroleum to consumers, a steady income to producers, and a fair return on capital for those investing in the petroleum industry, end quote. All of which sounds pretty good, but what this means in practice is that because these 13 nations between them account for around 44% of the world's global oil production and around 80% of the world's proven oil reserves, they have a great deal of influence over oil pricing, oil production numbers, strategic issues like who gets how much oil and when to some degree anyway and economic issues tied to oil, which, if we allow for a step or two between connected industries, touches on just about everything in the modern economy. The 13 countries that are part of OPEC today, as of January 2020, are Algeria, Angola, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Nigeria, the Republic of the Congo, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Venezuela. Saudi Arabia is the first among equals leader of this group, while Ecuador, Indonesia, and Qatar were previously members but have since left the organization. Before OPEC was founded, the main managerial body for worldwide petroleum production and distribution was a collection of seven transnational petroleum companies, often referred to as the Seven Sisters, the Consortium for Iran, and or the supermajors, depending on the time period in question. But at all stages, it was a cartel that dominated the petroleum industry, mostly from the mid-1940s until the 1970s. When the oil crisis of 1973 hit, the Seven Sisters corporations controlled about 85% of the then-known global oil reserves, But anger from these nations had been brewing for decades, and the eventual founding nations of OPEC had been increasing their levels of diplomacy with each other ever since the end of World War II, in an effort to counterbalance the influence that these companies, most of which were based in Europe or the United States, had within their borders, due to the deals that they had struck to manage local oil resources for these oil-having governments, sharing the resultant income, but seldom opening up their books, which gave them a lot of power over how much money went where. And they were essentially, in practice, paying the local leadership to extract their oil wealth and then to divvy out the profits as they saw fit. The Seven Sisters companies made a unilateral decision to cut prices on oil produced in Middle Eastern countries, and that catalyzed some conversations between the leadership of those countries about how they might increase the income that they make from their oil and their control over the industry. In 1971, this group negotiated with the Seven Sisters oil companies to increase their profit shares, and in 1973, these countries, now going under the moniker the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OAPEC, which was made up of OPEC countries plus Egypt and Syria announced production cuts and an embargo against the United States and other wealthy countries that were supporting Israel and the Yom Kippur War, a conflict between Israel and an Arab state coalition led by Egypt and Syria, which took place in 1973. This war was sort of a follow-up to a previous war, often called the Six-Day War, which took place six years earlier, as this second war was over land that was occupied by Israel during that earlier conflict. The 1973 embargo was devastating to the United States and the United Kingdom in particular, due in part to other variables like a dispute with coal miners in the United Kingdom and declining oil production in the United States. An emergency three-day work week was implemented in the UK, a bunch of European nations banned driving on Sundays, and although the embargo ended the following year, a global economic recession was sparked ending the post-World War II economic boom and leading to the creation of the International Energy Agency, national emergency stockpiles of oil and other fundamental resources, and the introduction of regulations that led to more energy-efficient cars, lower speed limits on highways, and better insulation in new buildings. This was also the moment where OPEC demonstrated its power and its willingness to use it. It had a stranglehold on a near-essential energy resource, and this flexing of its economic muscles did not go unnoticed, leading to changes in diplomatic and economic postures around the world from that day forward. What I'd like to talk about today is a recent stirring of the pot in the oil-focused economic world and what this new conflict might mean for those directly involved and those of us who will have to deal with the great many and potentially quite significant secondary consequences. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled "Oil Sell-off Resumes, Set for Steepest Weekly Fall Since 2008." This piece covers a very strange and, for some, immensely uncomfortable situation that's unfurling in the oil industry at the moment. And part of that discomfort stems from the steep fall in petroleum stock prices, and part stems from a recent conflict between former industry allies, which could lead to a complete realignment of the global energy sector and the potential, perhaps permanent, destruction of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of jobs in the United States and other oil-producing countries worldwide. But before getting into the specifics of what's happening now, it's important to understand a bit about how we got here and what here, referring to the status quo as of early 2020, has until just recently looked like. In the intro, I talked a bit about the birth of OPEC, the international cartel that has controlled most of the oil wealth around the world, since the 1960s, and their reign continued nearly unopposed, even amidst relatively frequent conflicts in the area, stirred up by groups both internal and external, including the United States several times, until the last decade or so. Their control was challenged in the 2010s when crude oil began to be extracted in North America from shale oil resources that had previously been untapped, but which had in the years leading up to that decade been invested in quite heavily. Important to note here is that in 2012, oil was selling for around $125 per barrel and remained above $100 per barrel pretty much all the way through late 2014. During that period of relatively high prices, it became thinkable to begin extracting oil that was more expensive to get to and quite pricey to process so that it was ready to be sold on the global market shale oil is a colloquial term used for the oil extracted from oil shale which is a type of rock that contains the same hydrocarbons as liquid oil they just have to be extracted often by burning these rocks which separates the burnt materials into liquid shale oil and a separate combustible oil shale gas which is different from the natural gas produced by other sources but it can be subbed in for natural gas for some use cases Now the downsides of shale oil are that it's more expensive to extract and refine, which raises the cost of doing business if you want to sell it on the open market, and it's also more polluting to do all the processing. It takes a lot of burning to extract it from the rock, and everything from the mining methods utilized to the waste materials produced are substantially higher impact than is the case with conventional oil extraction, where it's still not super easy to get at oil anywhere, even in places like Russia and Saudi Arabia, where the stuff is pretty close to the surface and relatively accessible. But compared to shale oil, traditional oil reserves are very, very easy to access, and very, very cheap to process. So the United States primarily in North Dakota, West Texas, and Oklahoma, but also several other states to lesser degrees, began extracting shale oil, a process often called fracking, as shorthand for hydraulic fracturing, which means, essentially, using highly pressurized liquid to create cracks deep underground, which then makes hydrocarbon-bearing minerals, liquids, and gases more accessible. And Canada began to do the same around the same time, primarily in Alberta. This led to a boom in the world of shale oil, which was supported and sustained by the high oil prices at that time. In 2011, the U.S. produced 5.7 million barrels of oil per day, but by 2018, that had increased more than two-fold to around 11.6 million barrels of oil each day. Those numbers made the United States the world's largest producer of crude oil, and the U.S. oil industry's approach to slowly upping their production year by year allowed them to avoid flooding the market in a way that would drop prices. They were able to keep growing, keep exploring, and expanding because their production kept going up, but little by little so the prices stayed high. A combination of factors led to an oil bust following that oil boom. One factor causing the bust was the eventual lowering of prices due to increased capacity, which was slow to catch up with volume, but did finally do so in 2016. Another major influence on pricing at this moment was a decline in Chinese economic growth, which lessened overall demand for oil on the global market. One final factor was OPEC, which continued to pump oil And put it on the market, even though typically it would cut production as prices fell to help raise them back up again, reducing supply to increase demand and thus the price per barrel. They did not do that this time around, and it's thought that their goal was to strangle the North American shale oil industry in its infancy. A facet of the oil industry, remember, that had already stolen the number one spot when it came to crude oil. So from their perspective, you could see how they might not be too keen to collaborate on pricing with a market nemesis that was quickly diminishing their industry power, and thus their economic and diplomatic influence as well. The United States industry in particular suffered during this period, but the oil producers kept on drilling and continued innovating, lowering the costs associated with their fracking and shale oil processing sometimes operating at a loss but making good use of available financial tools to stay afloat. Dozens of U.S. oil companies filed for bankruptcy during this period, though, and 55,000 workers were laid off. Global oil prices were down to $26.55 per barrel in January of 2016, compared to, remember, $100 to $125 per barrel back when the U.S. shale industry got started. But those companies that survived were able to ride an upward price surge after that low, using renewed investor interest and some generous government allowances to buy up their dead and dying competitors, rebuilding the hurt-but-not-gone American shale oil industry, and finding themselves in a pretty good spot to fulfill some of China's resurgent oil appetite, reclaiming their top position as number one crude oil exporting nation in the world. This new, more stable dynamic that emerged with traditional oil producers dominated by OPEC countries on one side and shale oil producers dominated by the United States on the other, resulted in lower than previous average prices per barrel as a default. There was more oil in the world, and as a result, the old dynamic and rules no longer applied, including those older, higher prices. Realizing this, OPEC made their first effort in a long while to reduce their own output in order to, they hoped, nudge those default prices upward, but to do so, they needed more producers than they had in their organization to also commit to cutting their production. In December of 2017, OPEC and Russia, along with nearly a dozen other countries, agreed to work together as a looser sort of cartel to adjust prices to get the market back to where they all wanted to see it, with higher prices and with less power in the hands of the shale oil purveyors. The group, which consisted of 24 countries in total, came to be known as OPEC+, and they dropped their production to nudge prices upward, which worked decently well leading into the beginning of 2020. This brings us to the until just very recently status quo, a deal between Russia and Saudi Arabia, along with other countries that have natural access to and which produce a great deal of oil, working together to serve as a counterbalance to the upstart and quite powerful shale oil industry, which has been flourishing and growing and evolving quickly in terms of power and technology, not to mention income in North America. And rapid growth in China and the many places China has been investing around the world, in part through its Belt and Road Initiative, has absorbed essentially as much oil as these entities have wanted to export. And that's alongside the usual usage in other growing, industrialized, and industrializing countries. So there's been a thriving market for oil, which this dual-polarity industry has been able to serve, allowing them to keep prices relatively stable and fairly profitable for everyone, with the U.S. taking the cake in terms of overall production, but everyone generally getting a decent slice of that cake. The U.S. at number one, but Russia in a close second, and Saudi Arabia right behind them, typically, in third place. This three-year-ish-long status quo was disrupted on March 9th of 2020, when a new proposal from Saudi Arabia was rejected by Russia. The proposal asked that the OPEC-plus nations as a group cut their oil output by 1 million barrels per day, with Russia shouldering the heaviest burden, cutting theirs by half a million barrels per day. So they would take on half of the overall cuts, while the remaining 23 countries about the same amount between them, which is obviously quite little in comparison. The idea was to increase worldwide oil prices by reducing the amount of oil on the market, but Russia, perhaps understandably, said no. The ostensible purpose behind this price hike was that demand had decreased worldwide, but especially in China, which was at the time in the midst of the worst of its COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak. Their oil demand tanking as their people went into lockdown their businesses closed, and everything slowed to a temporary stasis. That demand drying up, the idea was to lower production, to rebalance things a bit, so that profits wouldn't take a nosedive as well. The decision to make Russia the sacrificial lamb here, though, was questionable from the start, and it seemed to be very self-serving on Saudi Arabia's part, though there's a chance that this rejection was really the intended outcome to begin with. The idea may have been to get Russia to make the first move to break up the OPEC plus alliance so that Saudi Arabia could then do what they did next and have it seem to be a countermove rather than a preemptive attack. After Russia pulled their support from OPEC plus, the Saudis said that they were pissed and that they would begin to make use of the flexible infrastructure that they have available. Unlike most other oil producing nations, Saudi Arabia maintains the ability to increase or decrease their output by very significant quantities. And in this case, they said, rather than decreasing their output, as they seemed to initially intend, they would dramatically increase their output, upping their production by up to 2 million barrels per day, which would bring them to somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 million barrels of oil being produced per day by early April. A new directive was issued shortly thereafter as the diplomatic war of words escalated between the formerly economically allied Russia and Saudi Arabia, and that directive said that the Saudi oil industry, which is inextricably tied to the government, would increase their sustained production capacity to 13 million barrels of oil per day within the next two years, at which point they would likely be the number one oil producer in the world, taking the crown from the U.S., There are several moving parts to this Rube Goldberg-like machine, things bumping into other things, mechanisms on one side of the planet influencing mechanisms on the other side of the planet, so let's talk a bit about how these pieces fit together, and who might be doing what, why. To understand some of the probable motivations here, it's important to understand the difference in the economics of oil production within the involved countries. According to the Aramco IPO prospectus from 2019, Saudi Aramco being the unofficial name of the Saudi Arabian Oil Company, which is the now publicly traded company owned by the Saudi government, which manages and exports the company's oil wealth, an entity that is also the most profitable company in the world, by the way. According to their initial public offering documentation, it costs them about $8.98 per barrel, to produce, transport, and otherwise get oil from the ground to the consumer, all told. And it's actually thought that it might be somewhat cheaper now due to investments that they've made in some of their oil fields since the prospectus was released. In comparison, Russian oil reportedly costs around $19.21 to produce per barrel, and U.S. shale oil costs a whopping $23.35 per barrel. The U.S. does have some non-shale traditional wells as well, but even those cost about $20.99 per barrel to utilize, and they are fewer and less productive than the shale oil wells. So Saudi Arabia has far lower operating costs per unit in this industry, meaning if prices drop precipitously, they're still in good shape. They will actually likely make a profit on oil even if prices drop to $10 a barrel, something that would force Russia and the United States and essentially every other oil-producing nation and business in the world to operate at a significant loss, costing them money to do business rather than making them money. Now, U.S. companies and the Russian government, alongside many of the other countries that produce oil, those in the former OPEC plus cartel and otherwise, have a lot of financial instruments that they can use to survive such deficits on their balance sheets for a while. The U.S. industry back in its early shale years had to do exactly that as the Saudis tried to put them out of business. These companies were able to make future-proofing deals, benefit from loans and other debts, and generally struggle through as they made investments that allowed them to slowly but surely lower their costs, diminishing the effect of low oil prices to the point that the Saudis eventually gave up. Their entire government is more or less funded by oil wealth, so even if they're technically making money on even cheap oil, they have less coming in when those prices are low. And there's only so long that even they can tolerate having that massively diminished budget. Now it's thought that part of why Russia didn't want to play ball with the Saudis' proposal to drop oil production... Raising prices is that the Russian government wanted to hurt U.S. oil companies in retaliation for sanctions placed on the Russian government-owned energy company Rosneft by the U.S. government. Russian President Vladimir Putin reportedly wanted to tank U.S. shale oil in retaliation for the damage caused to Rosneft and to, longer term, potentially kill off some of their oil industry rivals in the same stroke. Raising prices would help them earn more money in the short term, but it would also allow U.S. shale oil companies to continue to profit and continue to invest in their infrastructure and global influence. They were all benefiting, but the U.S. was benefiting most in some ways, including in terms of expanding upon its oil export relationships and accompanying global infrastructure. That said, it is suspected that if smaller U.S. oil companies begin to go out of business, The larger ones will just scoop up those assets and become more powerful, just like they did back in the day. So this would not do much to stifle the outward flow of oil, at least in the long term. Another theory, then, says that Russia walked away from OPEC+, Plus because they actually have ambitions to take more of the global market, especially those that are currently weakened by a deflated coronavirus-diminished demand, but which will likely experience a post-pandemic boom in the coming months and years. Russia wouldn't be able to make such deals if their production was limited by the OPEC-plus arrangement. Thus, it is suspected that they're actually ramping up production in a big way, hoping to snag more European and Chinese market share from both the Saudis and the U.S. in the coming years. Saudi Arabia's move seems to be aiming for much of the same, but with a much more aggressive undertone. They want to scoop up that market share when the demand returns, but in the meantime, they hope to kill off most or all of their rivals, or at the very least to put them all in a severely weakened state. Saudi Arabia has far lower operational costs and per-unit costs, after all. And they have over $500 billion in net foreign assets, which allows them to shield their public finances if and when revenues from oil sales drop, something other entities have as well, but not at the same level. The Saudis are perhaps uniquely able to make this kind of attack on their rivals then, which could, in turn, put them in a stellar position to compete for renewed oil demand from China and elsewhere post-COVID-19 pandemic. The long-term consequences of all of this are difficult to gauge, of course. There are, again, a lot of moving parts here, and a lot could happen in the meantime over the course of the next few months and years. If that expected post-pandemic oil demand fails to materialize, for instance, the Saudis could find themselves with absolutely immense stockpiles of oil that they cannot sell fast enough, leaving them with production and storage-related investments that never pay off. A lot of oil, sure, but oil prices still underwater and their economy, which is heavily reliant on profits from those intended sales in a very shaky, unstable state. It could also be that oil demand returns. This is actually what's predicted to happen by most experts at this point, and that in a few years we move toward peak oil demand, which is projected to spike around 2022 before dropping and reaching some kind of relatively stable state leading into 2025, stable until it is eventually replaced or mostly replaced by other types of energy leading up to 2050. As I record this, in mid-March of 2020, oil prices have tanked. Oil company stock prices have also tanked, and there are panicky articles being written for financial news outlets, with headlines like, Death Watch Begins for the Subprime of Shale Oil Drilling, Historic Slide in Oil Could Cost Energy Industry Thousands of Jobs, and, The very real prospect of $5 oil, that latter piece presenting a potential wildly pessimistic projection from Citigroup that oil could just keep plummeting, leaving oil prices at around $5 per barrel, causing the industry to collapse upon itself, the survivors re-emerging right as demand shifts to other far more empowered and clean energy sources. Now, part of the panic being felt at this moment by people in this industry is related to the double whammy of simultaneous demand and supply shocks. The supply shock is the overabundance of oil that we suddenly have coming onto the market, which is lowering prices. The demand shock is the diminished need for oil as industry and travel collapses worldwide due to the COVID-19 pandemic. One or the other type of shock can sometimes be a boon for the industry and there are well-honed strategies for both surviving and thriving under them. To have both at the same time, though, is nearly unprecedented, at least at this level, and the consequent scramble by everyone involved is testament to just how untread this territory is. There are concerns, at some high levels, too, that we could actually, worldwide, run out of space in which to store excess oil that we produce. Most countries have some kind of reserve system in place for spare oil, In the U.S., we have what's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which has traditionally given the country the ability to weather supply shocks and to be more energy independent, especially when faced with threats by OPEC and similar entities. There's a chance that the world's oil infrastructure could generate nearly 13 million barrels per day of surplus of oil that is not being bought or used in the second quarter of 2020 which would mean a cumulative surplus of over 2 billion barrels by the end of the year. Bank of America Global Research estimates that there is a global spare inventory capacity of only 900 million barrels, while Goldman Sachs says that they estimate that it's closer to 1 billion barrels of unused oil storage worldwide at the moment, half of what we would need if that other projection ends up being the case. While it's possible that more storage could be built, That still takes time and operating at this capacity, it's possible that by the end of 2020, we could see strategic reserves, excess emergency storage, and every spare tanker ship we can find filled to the brim with oil that no one needs and that has very little value on the open market. This is happening at a time too in which financial institutions, including the world's biggest, are pulling investments from fossil fuel oriented companies and refocusing instead on clean energy producers or at the bare minimum those that are more neutral toward fossil fuels there's a chance then not anywhere near a certainty but a chance that we could produce and produce and produce as part of this oil war all the petroleum companies trying to vie for market share and put their rivals out of business only to emerge on the other side where demand and prices are expected to return all of these companies that survive to profitability with that demand never manifesting Everyone having moved on or being well on their way to moving on to other energy sources. We could flood our global spare storage spaces with oil and then never use that oil. One more important component of this situation is what's happening to the smaller OPEC and former OPEC plus countries that are not big enough to compete with the US, Russia, and Saudi Arabia, but which are still part of this struggle and which are mostly suffering and likely to keep suffering. As their oil profits dry up, Nigeria, for instance, has seen its oil profits fall off a cliff in the past few weeks. And they recently passed a $37 billion national budget that requires a minimum oil price of $57 per barrel if they want to be able to afford it. As of the moment I'm recording this, the average crude oil price per barrel is $22.63 less than half of what Nigeria needs to pay for the budget that they've already passed. And they're not alone in facing a vast disparity between spending plans and the resources that they have available to pay for those plans. Expected income drying up due to international politicking and global resource maneuvering that's beyond their control, and arguably for which they have very little or no responsibility. Although this price drop is often great in the short term, for those of us on the ground, due to price savings at the pump, and potentially associated drops in prices for things like shipping and travel, provided those companies pass their savings along to consumers, the drop will still be devastating to certain economies, and thus for many people who rely on public services and public infrastructure, which is just about everyone, but the effects will be more potent in areas where a higher percentage of the government budget is reliant on petroleum income. It may be that in the near future, we see Saudi Arabia doing the math and realizing that this move that they're making might not turn out as planned. They could go to the negotiating table and pull back, getting their opponents to give them some of what they want in terms of market share and or other economic or political benefits in exchange for them tugging on the reins a bit and lessening the monetary harm that they're causing to huge swaths of the global energy sector and thus global financial sectors and other governmental interests as well harm that would likely continue for years, lacking such a tug. It may also be that the Saudis revel in this newfound power and stay the course, killing off their opposition, even if it means they lord over a far smaller petroleum-based industry when all is said and done. One or more of these players could come up with innovations that allow them to compete or at least sustain themselves through the worst of this price drop. There could also be asymmetric moves, a war, or a similar conflict launched to force the Saudis' hand, or which serves the same purpose through alternative means. Diplomatic channels support provided to the Saudis in their ongoing conflict with Iran in exchange for diminished oil output, maybe something along those lines. At the moment, though, most petroleum prognosticators are predicting that a whole lot of jobs will disappear. A lot of company valuations will continue to freefall and oil prices will continue to stay low, perhaps decreasing even further for several months before we hit rock bottom and try to figure out where the end point of all this is. Though most bets seem to be on sometime in 2022 or 2023 at the moment. How this will influence and be influenced by COVID-19 is also up in the air, though again it's thought that one potential bright point on the horizon for those involved, might be a resurgence in industry and investment as countries come out of the worst of the pandemic and start to rebuild, reinvesting in their economies to get things back up and running and thus potentially burning a whole lot more oil than usual, which would be great for the petroleum industry, but substantially less good for the environment and the various efforts that are trying to reduce the quantity of emissions that we put into the air. book that I'd like to recommend today is called Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. This is a book that I started fairly early on in the COVID-19 pandemic before everything started to shut down, and I'm recommending it because it's a very good book, not because it's necessarily the best thing to read during a pandemic. It actually takes place in the context of a pandemic. There's a bunch of unknowns. There is a rush to try to solve problems. There's the CDC. There is worldwide intrigue. And there are all kinds of hate groups and politicians and radio personalities and other such entities that complexify the matter. It's a well-written book. It's a fun romp. It's very interesting. It's compelling. There's a lot of fascinating twists and turns all the way to the end. So it's a very good and enjoyable read. Just be aware if you're already stressed out about COVID-19 and all of the accompanying stressors that come with that, this is maybe not the best book right now. It is an excellent book to pick up to read at some point. And it's a very long book, so it will keep you engaged and engrossed in the story for a decent amount of time. So in that regard, it's good if you have a lot of free time on your hands. But if you are already utterly stressed out by the pandemic, probably opt for something a little bit friendlier until you're feeling that you're in a better mind space. So that very unusual and situational caveat in place, if you're looking for something interesting to read and you like good contemporary science fiction that is very believable, perhaps unfortunately, consider picking up a copy of Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find some of my other projects at brainlenses.com, askcolin.com, and exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at ColinIsMyName on Twitter and Instagram and pretty much all of the other ones. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.